Okay. Am I got sound? Sound check. Okay, we got sound. Okay, just some uh, reminders on my announcement sheet. I have a, a first announcement is that Pastor Dean is returning from vacation tomorrow. But I, I don't know. I'm, with, with jet lag, I may go on vacation in 15 minutes. Uh, but um, the only two announcements we have, number one is men's prayer breakfast is this Saturday morning and then deacons meeting. So we need to make sure that, you know, invite somebody, come out. Uh, we always have a, a great time in the Word and just in fellowship uh, with one another. So that's at 7.30 Saturday morning. The second announcement is that while I was gone, I had some email interchanges with our travel agent dealing with the trip to Greece and Israel, and the airlines want some kind of confirmation that we have uh, are going to have enough people. Same thing with the hotel. So the 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 whole um, tourist industry in Israel is just just incredible, and every year it's better than the year before. So it's at the point now where to book your hotels and everything, you have to do it at least a year and a half ahead of time. So there's a lot of pressure for all these uh, spots on the airline and everything else. Right now we have um, a small number of people who have sent in their registration. That's the only thing we can count on. And we're going to have to draw a line in the sand, and that's going to be December 1st. So if you're thinking about going, that deposit is refundable until we get to the point in February when we have to pay the airlines. But we need to have deposits in, and we need to have at least 75% of the minimum number, which is 20. We need to have at least 75% signed up with deposit money in, or we're going to be canceling both of those trips if we don't have that in by the 1st of December. So that's these are just some of the way things have changed um, <clears throat> in the past couple of years related to these tours. It used to not be that way. So that's it. Well, it's good to be back. It's good to have had a good little vacation. And despite various little bumps and grinds, it was a tremendous trip, And but I'm very glad to be back. Scripture says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary and run and not faint. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so you can all make sure that you are properly prepared to study the word in right relationship with the Lord, enjoying our fellowship, our partnership with the Lord in our spiritual life, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can be here this evening to study your word. We're thankful for another day that we have to serve you, to glorify you with our lives to learn and study your word that uh, we might 
have our thinking conform to the truth of your word and not be under the influence of the world system around us. Father, we continue to pray for our president. We pray for our government, our governing leaders. We pray that they might um, return to a solid foundation related to your word, biblical principles, the Constitution, and that in this upcoming year, ramping up to the election next year, that uh, you will just provide some really solid leaders that would be elected to office that would get us out of the morass that we're in. And, Father, we know that the only ultimate solution is not political, it's spiritual. And we, we pray for our nation that it would be... that they they would turn around and there would be a focus upon you. But that can't happen without a clear presentation of the gospel and the truth of your word. And so we need men who will clearly present the truth of your word and the gospel, who will um, lead the way. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Second Peter. We have got a great study tonight and next week, pulling some things together that some of you uh, will recognize this and you understand this fairly well, but there are some new things I'm going to be pointing out and bringing out as we go through this material, which we started actually two lessons back here in our study of of uh, Second Peter, but... Um, we're going to be focusing, especially next week, on some some uh, a clarification of some rather old material for for many of us. And I just want to say that it's uh, it's great to be back. Great to see everyone here and all the familiar faces and everything. I hope you enjoyed Dr. Petrovich while I was gone. It was a little bit um, challenging, I think, for everybody to keep up with him. I got a sense of what it's like for many of you sometimes when, uh, in fact, I was telling Charlie this today, that when he or I start talking about some things and everybody sort of eyes glaze over and we get the response afterwards that, well, I need to listen to that message three or four times before I get it. And I'm sh- I know that I'm going to have to go back and listen to each of those two or three times to really grasp everything that he was uh, that he was saying. I thought he had a tremendous material. It is controversial material, but every decade or so, there's some new insights that come from archaeology in the area of Egyptology that continue to demonstrate that there is confirmation in the archaeological record of the Exodus account. And as he pointed out, something that uh, I've pointed out for about three decades now that if you're not looking in the right time frame, in the right decade, in the right year, you don't find evidence of the Israelites in, in Egypt. And so he has done a good job. He's tightened up some uh, areas that needed to be tightened up, and he's really done a, a tremendous, uh, tremendous job with that. Um, <clears throat> much of what he went into was new to me, all of the hieroglyphics and and, uh, bringing out the insights into the Egyptian name of Joseph and the possibility of of identifying Manasseh and Ephraim and the palace and all of that information. 
And I know that for, for many people, uh, listening to somebody who's dealing with that kind of technicality can, um, can be a little bit daunting. And it may be a little bit boring. And sometimes you might even fall asleep. I, rem- I didn't get too many opportunities to listen and try to catch up. And usually it was the end of the day of being out, uh, seeing a lot of sights and doing a lot of things. And I'd watch for about 15 minutes, and then all of a sudden I'd be asleep. That never happened to y'all, did it? So it was, um, it was really good. And the importance of listening to that kind of material uh, cannot be overstated. I remember when I was um, uh, in my first pastorate, it was the early 80s, and I was pastoring down in Lamarck, down near Galveston, and there, the, a creationist organization managed to get a speaker to come, and he spoke at uh, an auditorium at the University of Houston. I don't think that would happen today. And the speaker was a European, I believe he was originally British, but he had... He was um, multilingual and had taught in numerous uh, institutions of higher learning around Europe. His name was uh, Dr. A.E. Wilder-Smith, and he wrote a book on the origins of man, and he wrote a couple of other books that I had uh, was familiar with. I had read The Origins of Man, but I had not read his other books and he had three PhDs. He had one in pharmacology, he had another one in chemistry, and he had another one in, in some specialty in cellular biology. And most of the detail that he covered in those three lectures I could barely follow because I just didn't have that much background in biology. And I kept thinking of that when I was listening to Petrovich, that I didn't quite, I didn't have the background to really critique the hieroglyphics or his translations of the Egyptian or things of that nature, but I, I, you could follow him. You could understand what that argument was. You could see how he laid it out and reached that conclusion. And the result of that, when I listened to Wilder Smith, was that even though I'll never be able to teach that, I could not uh, regurgitate it in an argument or debate with somebody, it uh, really confirmed my faith in the fact that not just not in the scripture per se but in the fact that science cannot support uh, evolution darwinian evolution and so it it was just it was powerful what he presented in those three hours and that was something that, that kept coming to my mind and it's especially important for a college age or high school age kids to listen to these things and to talk about them because they get so attacked. I mean, Christians get so attacked on these issues in history classes, in college classes. The assumption is that that the Bible is just all mythology. This was just all made up. There was no literal Moses. There was no, uh, no, no presence of the Jews in Egypt. And you go to college and you hear this in various courses, and the next thing you know, your faith has been undercut by these liberal professors, and you never hear the uh, presentation of the truth. And even if you don't grasp everything, you know all through your life, 
I remember hearing somebody who really nailed the subject. I remember how they went through it and how convincing it was. And even though I can't regurgitate or maybe even recall the answer, I know there's an answer. And that those kinds of things are really important to just bolster our faith as it's being attacked so much, uh, so much in our in our world. And I know that um, I got a sense of how many of y'all must feel at the end of some of our my Bible classes when you just finish and you feel like your brain's just been turned inside out, and you go home and think, well, I need to listen to that about five times before I really catch what what is going on. So uh, we all learn different ways, but that's how knowledge works. We, um, we don't learn if all we are told is the things that we've always heard. We don't learn unless we're exposed to new material and it's developed and we're given more and more information. That's the process of growth. It's a dynamic process. It's not linear We learn a little here, we learn a little there, as Scripture says, and over the course of time, you look back and you go, wow, I can't believe how much I have learned over the last five or ten years as I've been consistent in listening to Bible class and consistent in in studying the Word. And so it's important to understand that the knowledge of the Scripture, as we study it and as we learn it, it's We're enabled by God the Holy Spirit, but he doesn't understand it for us. He doesn't do the mental work for us. I think some people have oversimplified that, and they just think that, well, if I listen, that somehow God the Holy Spirit is going to do the mental sweat. But the Bible talks about meditating on God's Word. That's the issue, is we have to put that effort in there, and as we grow... A little here, a little there, God the Holy Spirit puts the pieces together. And what our responsibility is, is to be diligent, to be consistent, and to constantly be be learning and challenging our own thinking so that over the course of time, we begin to see the real fruit of the Spirit in our in our own lives. And that's part of the background of what I'll get into, not so much tonight, but, but next week, trying to come to grips with the importance that Peter places on knowledge. And he uses two important words, gnosis, which we're familiar with, and epinosis. And so we'll get into that more next time. But today I want to continue what I started in the last lesson and with a little review because that was three or four weeks ago, and we've all sort of forgotten. I had to go back and listen to the last part of the last lesson. So, And I was surprised. I thought, you know, I don't remember teaching that. I had actually thought I was at the lesson before. So we all have to go through those reminders. So what we're looking at, what we started to look at the last time, is the conditions for a spiritually fruitful life. We've been looking at 2 Peter 1.3, and I just want to set the context for us so we get our heads back into the uh, passage and into the flow of Peter's thinking. And in verse 3, he says that God's divine power, his omnipotence, has given to us all things that pertain to our physical life and spiritual life, through the knowledge of him. So it is through, that's the means of 
of of uh, coming to grips with what God has provided for us, and he uses the word epinosis here, and through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory. And that word epinosis is important because, as we'll, as I'll demonstrate next week, it's really targeted, a targeted word, talking about specifics. It's interesting that the word is used in different ways at different times by the Apostle Paul and also by Peter. How Paul uses it in his earlier epistles is different from the way he uses it in his prison epistles in relation to the spiritual life and how he uses it again later on in the pastoral epistles. So it's through this knowledge, this targeted knowledge, and and often the object is truth, the object is the person of God or the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That uh, he has provided this for us, and then it goes on after verse 3 into verse 5, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. And so I pointed out that this was a rhetorical device used to structure uh, the content. This isn't talking about a linear way of growth, so that you first you have faith, and then you have virtue, and then on top of that you then get knowledge, and on top of that self-control. It is, it's presented that way, but knowledge and growth is dynamic. But that's how you learn the basics of something, is you look at the individual components, and then in the reality of life, it's, it's much different from that. And then we get it, got into verse 8. For if these things are yours, that is, if you are growing and you see the Holy Spirit producing these qualities, these virtues in your life, then you will be neither barren nor unfruitful. And we're talking about how do you become fruitful in the Christian life now. So you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then you get the negative in verse 9, for he who lacks these things, if you don't have this fruit, doesn't mean you're not saved. It means that you have regressed, you're short-sighted, you're becoming, um, because you're walking according to the sin nature, you're becoming spiritually blind, and you have forgotten what Christ has done for you, that you've been cleansed, uh, cleansed from your sin. And so I use this chart that the way it's structured is faith is the foundation and then love is sort of the pinnacle in the Christ- Christian life developing those, those, these different qualities. And it's presented in this uh, figure of speech called a sorites and it builds step by step from virtue or spiritual excellence to knowledge, this is gnosis, as opposed to epinosis, we have to learn the basics, we have to get information, we have to get facts, we have to know who the people are in Scripture, we have to know what they did, why it's important that the Holy Spirit gave us that information. Uh, it de- then develops uh, self-discipline. This is part of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 
uh, that we'll look at uh, if I get there tonight. And then endurance, hanging in there, sticking with it, uh, even when it gets difficult, even when the weather's bad, whatever the problems are, we stay in there, we hang in there, uh, attending Bible class, studying, learning, reading our Bible on a daily basis, uh, brotherly affection, that's care for one another, and ultimately love for one another. But that's laid out in a uh, literary fashion indicating that sort of structure, but the dynamic is more like this. We grow a little in one area one week, we grow a little in another area another week, and it's not a straight line. And so often when you and I have heard certain things taught in a might be a logical manner, people have said, well, first of all, I have to... Uh, I have to get virtue, and I have to work on that. Once I have that down, then I'd go to the next area. Then I would have knowledge. Well, wait a minute. Is virtue separate from knowledge, or is it the result of having knowledge? So obviously there's not. it's not being presented in terms of a structure that you do this first and then that first and then this other thing. It's just laying these things out in a rhetorical fashion and actually, we learn a little about this. We grow in this area or in that area. Life isn't a straight line. It takes you time to grow, and you grow in different areas. And then after Peter said that, he concludes by saying, for if these things are yours and abound, you'll be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and so this emphasizes what we have if, and that's the condition that's expressed there, if they're yours and it's assumed that they, they are, that the readers are growing and that they are developing in abundance, these virtues in abundance in their life, the result is that they will not be um, uh, barren, which is this word argos, which has the idea of being Lazy or unproductive would be the best way to translate it in this passage because it is uh, <laughs> linked with the word akarpos. Fruit here isn't talking about literal fruit. It's metaphorical for being productive. So you will be neither unproductive nor unfruitful. You're going to grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the negative in verse 9, he who lacks these things, uh, the one who doesn't have these qualities, is short-sighted. You're just someone who can't think beyond the end of their nose, as my mother used to say. You can't think in terms of tonight or tomorrow or the long-term effects. And it makes you so nearsighted, you're running into things. And uh, you've forgotten that you've been cleansed. You've forgotten that joy that you have because you have forgiveness and that you have eternal life. This idea of fruit is so terribly misunderstood, and one of the ways it's misunderstood is people think of fruit in terms of some sort of quantifiable, um, some sort of quantifiable evidence in their life. And usually they think in terms, of, in our culture, in terms of numbers, the number of people they've witnessed to, the number of people they love to the Lord, the number of things that they've done, and yet the Scripture emphasizes fruit. And sometimes it's, for example, in Matthew, uh, Jesus talks about 
uh, the Pharisees and condemning them and says, by their fruit you will know them. And everybody misinterprets that passage and wants to make it say that by looking at their life you'll know whether they're saved or not. But that's not the context. The fruit in the context of that passage is what the Pharisees taught, what they said. And by looking at what they've taught, comparing that to the standard of Scripture, you understand that they're false teachers and that they're wrong. So fruit sometimes has to do with what is taught, the fruit of their lips. And in other passages, it has to do with character. And those are the passages we started looking at uh, the last time. For example, in, as a sort of an introductory passage in Romans six twenty-one and 22, Paul is concluding the opening part of his discussion on sanctification in the spiritual life, that we've been freed from the sin nature due to the baptism by the Holy Spirit, which was described in Romans 6, 3 through 6, because at the instant of salvation, we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. The sin nature, the old man that we were, is dead. But the sin nature is still there. It doesn't reign over us like it did before. But its power is broken. And as Paul develops this, he points out that you were slaves of sin before we were uh, saved, but now we are slaves of righteousness. And then at the end of Romans 6.21, remember he's talking to them as believers. He's not talking to them as unbelievers. He's saying what fruit, that is what character qualities did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed. Looking back as in your life as an unbeliever, we recognize that there were things that we did, things that we uh, valued that we're ashamed of. Now we realize they have no eternal consequence. They have no significance. They were things that were just, they might have given us fleeting pleasure at the time, but it has no eternal uh, significance. And so Paul says, the end result of those things is death, not eternal death. He's not talking about that in the context. We're not talking about eternal condemnation. We're talking about uh, temporal uh, death. Uh, this is how the word is used many times. It's non-productive. James uses it that way when he talks about a faith without works is dead. It is non-productive. And so he said the end of those things, it doesn't produce anything for eternity. Uh, Romans 6.22, but now having been set free from sin, that is, at, with the baptism by the Holy Spirit, uh, that power of the sin nature is broken. We still have a sin nature, but its, uh, its autonomy over us has been broken. And having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to what? To winning a lot of people to Jesus, to having a lot of students in your Sunday school class to being involved in lots of different ministries. See, it's not talking about quantifiable things. It's talking about the character. You have fruit to what? To holiness, to spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. And the end, the end result is everlasting life. And every time we see a phrase like this, we tend to think of everlasting life in contrast to eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. But the words everlasting life have two senses. Sense number one has to do with quantity. So that is living forever without uh, eternal condemnation. But the other sense is quality. So 
you, you, your, your fruit, your production is to a spiritual life, spiritual maturity, and the end result is a quality of life that it continues to develop so you have capacity for life, capacity to enjoy everything that God has given to you. And see, the next verse in Romans uh, 6.23 goes on to say, the wages of sin is death. And everybody uses that to talk about, um, to talk about uh, spiritual death. And that the wages of sin is we're, we're dead and, we, and the free gift of God is eternal life. But getting saved, justified is the topic of Romans 3, 4, and 5. That's done, over and done with. Now he's talking to those who are already saved, already justified, and he is saying the wages of sin, if you live as a slave to the sin nature in your spiritual life, then the result of that is carnal death. It is a non-productive life. But uh, and that's the wages of sin. But the free gift of God is eternal life, a quality of life. This is what Jesus talked about in John 10.10. 10. Uh, I came not as a thief to steal and destroy, but to give life and to give it abundantly. That's what this is talking about, that abundant, rich life that is ours to experience in our walk with the Lord. So we see that fruit here is that which is related to character. It's related to the development, if you will, of the uh, image of Christ in our life, the, the quality. Uh, and so we looked last time at the passage in John 15, 1 through 8, where John, uh, Jesus said in John fifteen four, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So in John 15, the sole condition for producing fruit, that is character transformation, is abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ is a, is a highly debated term. Those who hold to a lordship view equate abiding in Christ with, uh, with faith. And so everybody abides in Christ. But that is completely erroneous, and that is a, a distortion of what is going on. And Jesus is talking to those who are already saved. He's talking to his disciples. He's already gotten rid of the only unbeliever, which was uh, Judas, in John chapter 13. Now he's telling the 11 that are left, how they are to live the spiritual life in the coming church age. And he says, abide in me, and that is what's necessary to produce fruit. If you don't abide in me, you will not produce fruit. The other passages that we're going to start looking at tonight, Ephesians 5, actually starting in verse 8, down, and we'll look at most of that chapter and just summarize it. And then Philippians 1.11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, that is translated in the New King James as a plural. It's a singular in the Greek, so it's the fruit of righteousness. And again, we see that, that the fruit is, in Ephesians 5.9, goodness, righteousness, and truth. It's character. It is tra being transformed into the character of Christ. It's the fruit of righteousness in Philippians 1.11, and then, of course, the benchmark passages in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, 
the fruit of the Spirit, notice the word is singular, but it involves the complex of all of these character qualities. It's not, again, it's dynamic. It's love. Why does he have love at the beginning and not at the end? Because just a few verses earlier in 5.14, he told them that they are to love their neighbor as themselves. But the problem with that was the sin nature, the flesh. The spirit wars against the flesh. The flesh wars against the spirit. But when you're walking by the spirit, the spirit will produce this in your life, these character qualities. So they're just listed, not in any specific order, but this is what God the Holy Spirit will produce in our lives. So we ask the question, what is fruit? How do we define fruit? We're not supposed to be fruit inspectors, which is the uh, province of the, uh, the provenance of the lordship crowd. What they want to do is go around and look at somebody's life and say, well, I don't see certain uh, character there, so maybe you're not saved. Or they'll look at somebody and say, well, they claim that they believed in Jesus, but I never saw any evidence, so they weren't saved. If you don't have evidence according to the lordship crowd, then you, don't, you can't say you're saved. They put their faith in evidence, not in the promise of God that if you believe in Jesus, you will have eternal life. This is your possession. And it doesn't say if you believe in Jesus and then live a different life. It doesn't say believe in Jesus and then produce a certain kind of fruit or quality in your life. It just says believe in Jesus. Now, some people are going to have spiritual growth. Others are not going to have spiritual growth. And they're going to be the ones that don't receive rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, but they're still going to be saved. So the question we're asking is, what is fruit? Is it something that's overt or quantifiable? I remember a professor at Dallas Seminary who later, I don't know what happened to him, but uh, he said, well, the problem with what MacArthur teaches is that he's trying to quantify fruit. Well, he must have forgotten what he said, but this is the problem. And you hear this in subtle ways. You'll hear people say, well, I don't know about so-and-so. You'll hear about some celebrity that claims to be saved and they trust in Jesus and they'll say, well, but look at their life. You know, they can't really be a Christian. Well, that's, that's a form of lordship salvation. You're trying to evaluate whether somebody has believed in Christ by looking at external evidence in their life. Are there times in your life, in my life, when we're sure that if anybody uh, knew about it, they would probably question our salvation? So the first thing is, is fruit overt quantifiable activity, or is it internal character transformation? And I've already demonstrated that from Romans 6. Second question we'll be addressing is, how is fruit produced? What are the necessary conditions? And in John 15, 4, which I just read, and in John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Jesus is saying that the sole condition for producing spiritual fruit is to abide in Christ. Now, we don't find that language in Paul, and we don't find that language in Peter. They use different terms. But what I'm 
what I'm presenting is that all of these terms are just looking at the same thing from slightly different vantage points. Uh, Walking by the Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit. Well, abiding in Christ is what produces the same thing. So that means that abiding in Christ must be uh, tantamount to walking by the Spirit. They must just be looking at it from uh, the one vantage point is looking at the role that Jesus plays in our spiritual life, and the other looks at the role the Holy Spirit plays in our spiritual life. So our conclusion from that uh, study last time is that the sole condition for producing spiritual fruit is to abide in Christ. But other passages mention these other conditions. So either there are many conditions, or these conditions are all just different facets of the same thing. Something I'll emphasize as living our lives in close, harmonious partnership with God. The phrase that we often use is fellowship. But we use it so much, we lose the significance of what fellowship means. It's from the Greek word koinonia, which has that idea of a partnership, of an intimate relationship. It is something that is very active, something that is very dynamic. It's not just this idea. Usually we hear the phrase, in fellowship. And that communicates almost a static idea for a lot of people, that if I just confess my sins, I'm in. And I just need to sit there and everything will happen for me. Some people get this very passive idea that if I'm just in fellowship, then I'm going to get zapped and the Holy Spirit's going to make all these decisions for me. And that borders, that is mysticism. It's a light form of mysticism. And what we're going to see in these passages is that fellowship and is identified as walking by the Holy Spirit. It, and walking is a very active concept. It's not a passive concept. So let's go from John 15, and now we're going to look at the next passage, which is in Ephesians. So this is going to kind of give you a glimpse of the end of Ephesians after we've been spending quite a bit of time the last year in the first part of Ephesians. So we come to the last part of Ephesians, and in verse 8 we read, for you talking to, who's he talking to when he says the word you? He's talking to these Gentile believers, And he says, you were once darkness. Have you had any kind of phrase like that already in in, uh, Ephesians? What about Ephesians 2, 1? You were born spiritually dead. That is the same idea. So it goes back to picking up that idea from Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Now that brings in a new new idea, a new dimension to this spiritual life that we have. We are, this is our position in Christ. We are light in the Lord. Uh, that is who we are. That's our identity. We are light. And then he says, walk as children of light. You are one thing. Now you are to walk or live your life. This whole metaphor of walking in the Scripture is just a way of talking about how we conduct our lives, how we think and how we live. And so he's saying, think and act and talk 
like your reality. Live your life as a child of light because that's who you really are. It's like somebody who gets adopted into a family, and as they get adopted into that family, they're now told that there are certain ways in which people in this family live. And so they are expected to live uh, uh, in that same manner. So we have this statement in verse 8, walk as children of light. And then there's a parenthetical statement, for the fruit of the Spirit. Now there's a textual problem here. In the New King James and King James, based on the majority text, it says the fruit of the Spirit. And in the critical text, which is the basis for the NASB and the NIV and the ESB and RSV and a number of others, it says the fruit of the light. So uh, I think it's probably spirit because I tend to uh, lean towards the majority text. It's probably the better uh, documented text, but it could go either way, and I understand I don't want to get off into all those issues, so I just am going to mention this as spirit slash light. The fruit of the spirit of light is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Now, once again, this isn't quantifiable. This is talking about character transformation. The fruit of the Spirit. You walk as children of light for the fruit of, let's just say light, and using these terms uh, related to one another, the fruit of the Spirit or the fruit of the light is all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And then in verse 10, it says, finding out. Now, that's an interesting word in the Greek. It's, it's dokimazo, which has to do with demonstrating or uh, testing, evaluating something. So what, what happens is as you walk as a child of light and you see character transformation, this demonstrates something. This is evidence or proof of something. And it proves that which is acceptable to the Lord. It demonstrates that. And then verse 11 is the contrast and have no fellowship See, this isn't a static thing. When you have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, you're doing things. You're living according to your sin nature. You're walking according to your sin nature. So we're not to have any partnership. That is an active involvement. It's not just a static, passive idea. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. We expose them because light exposes that which is in the shadows, that which is in darkness. So to understand the significance of this, we need to look at context. Three basic laws, I say this facetiously, three basic laws of hermeneutics, context, context, context. Like in real estate, it's location, location, location. So what is going on here? Well, let's go back, since we've been studying Ephesians, on Sunday morning, let's look at the broader context. Well, first of all, in the near context, the very first command related to walking or how we live our life is just uh, three verses or about five verses earlier in Ephesians 5.2 where Paul writes, and walk in love. It could be understood walk by means of love. That is where the means by which we make decisions and we live our lives is going to be governed by the mandate to love one another as Christ loved the church. 
Walk by means of love as Christ also has loved us and given himself as a substitute for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Now, this isn't the first time that the idea of walking or living your life uh, shows up in, in Ephesians. In fact, this is part of the last part of Ephesians. Remember, Ephesians has six chapters. Chapters 1 through 3 talk about <clears throat> the wealth that we have in Christ. And then the next two and a half chapters, 4, 5, down to 6, 9, talk about our walk, our life based on the wealth and the identity that we have in Christ. And then the last part of 6.10 and following talks about the warfare of the, of the believer. So Ephesians 5.2 is picking up a theme that gets introduced in Ephesians 4.1. This is where Paul makes a shift on the basis of understanding all of the wealth that we have in Christ, the blessings that we have been blessed with, Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now, some people misunderstand this to mean that we are to live our lives to become worthy of our salvation, and that's just not what he is saying uh, at all. He is actually picking up something that he introduced earlier in Ephesians. So you look at the idea of calling. That was first introduced in the introduction, in the first chapter. There's the opening uh, blessing uh, related to what the Father's done, the Son's done, the Holy Spirit has done in blessing us. And then in verse 15, it shifted to a prayer. We spent about four or five weeks just studying through that prayer and from Ephesians uh, 1, 15 and following. But in one eighteen, he says, the eyes of your understanding, having already been enlightened, that's what happened at the instant of salvation, that you may know something. So God enlightens us and opens the eyes of our soul at the instant of salvation so that now we can see and we can begin to understand the truth of Scripture for the purpose that we can understand the hope that is that future expectation, that confident expectation we have of his calling. So we've been called. That introduces the idea of calling. Calling basically means that we have had a gracious invitation to salvation. We have been invited to accept Christ as Savior and to have eternal life. And when we respond to that invitation, what happens is that God's righteousness is imputed to us, and when God the Father sees that we have that imputed righteousness, he declares us to be justified. We also, at the same time, receive a new life, an eternal life. We're given new life in him. We are made new creatures in Christ. We are also, third, we're also baptized or identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, which puts us into the body of Christ. So we are now members of this new entity called the church, and we have new life in him, and we are a new creature in Christ. That's the fourth thing that happens. And then fifth, we are adopted into God's royal family. 
and that royal family has a new code of conduct. And that is exactly what we're going to see in the second part of Ephesians, that code of conduct which is compatible with God's righteousness. Now, that's why Paul shifts in in chapter 4 to walk worthy of your calling, this invitation now, because we've been adopted into a new family, we have a new code of conduct, and he's already reminded them of what it was like before they accepted the invitation. They were spiritually dead. You were born dead in your trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1, in which, that is, in those sins, you, that is, you unsaved Gentiles, once walked according to the course of this world. You lived like the world thought you ought to live, and that was really according to Satan, according to his way of doing things, here identified as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. But then, as we've seen in our study on Sunday morning, but God did something. We were born dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together with him. So we were born spiritually dead, and we lived our lives. We walked according to the course of the world. But God made us alive. So now that we're no longer spiritually dead, but spiritually alive, we're to walk in a different way. And this is where that chapter goes in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, we who have believed and been made alive together with Christ, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works, that is, walking by the Spirit and the uh, production by the Holy Spirit, which God prepared beforehand that what? That we should walk in them. Notice how all this walking is all talking about a lifestyle, and now there's a lifestyle change and a lifestyle purpose. So we go back to our passage in Ephesians 5.8. And Paul says, you once you were once darkness, so unsaved, spiritually dead, walking according to the prince of the power of the air, you were in darkness, but now you are a light. It's a new position, a new identity. You are and I are new persons, a new identity. We are light in the Lord, but many times we still live like we did before we were saved. We think like an unbeliever. We act like an unbeliever. We think it's a lot of fun to be uh, imitating unbelievers in certain areas. But we are to live differently. We are to walk as children of light. We ha- we're in a new family. We have a new identity. And as we walk as children of light, the Spirit produces something different in us, a life that is characterized by goodness, righteousness, and truth. Now, there's a third command. See, this uh, walk as children of light is a second command for walking. The first was walking in love. Now, walk as children of light. But then the third use of the term is in Ephesians 5.15. Now, watch how all of this comes together. See, then you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. thing I want you to point out is there are many people who think that what happens is in the Christian life is we do, everything we do has mixed motives. 
And so part of it's good, part of it's bad, part of it's fleshly, part of it's according to the Spirit. But that's not how Paul explains it. Paul explains this as two characteristic, two incompatible opposites. It's either walking in the light or walking in darkness. There's not some gray area in between. And here he says, walk circumspectly, walk objectively, not as fools, but as wise. So you're either A or B. You're not some in-between overlapping area. So you're either fools or wise, and the wise person redeems the time because his days are evil, because the days are evil. So we redeem the time because we know how fleeting it is, and every moment is valuable for eternity. Therefore, in verse 17, he says, don't be unwise. That's a parallel to being a fool. But understand what the will of the Lord is. So you're either wise and understanding the will of the Lord, as it's explained in Scripture, or you're unwise. It's either or, one or the other. You're either walking by the Spirit or walking according to the flesh. All through the New Testament uses all these different terms. You're either abiding in Christ or you're not abiding. There's no in-between. And then in verse 18, he says, Do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation. Wine is seen as a means to something, and that's the means to giving joy in the life of the unbeliever. Some have argued that I think has some merit that this was uh, in Ephesus. There was also a worship of Bacchus and Dionysius. And when we were just in Italy, it was interesting. We went to uh, one of the muse- many museums, and I can't keep them all sorted, but there were uh, a number of incredible sculptures in there. There was a mock-up of, uh, that, uh, of Moses from Michelangelo. There was a, ba- a statue of Bacchus by Michelangelo and by many others, Donatello and others. And one, Next to a Madonna and child, it seems like the most popular subject for a sculpture was Bacchus. And so you all had this, always had these uh, figures of, of a male. There was always a cluster of grapes, and there's a cup, and, and he's just having a great time uh, in, in great debauchery. But, um, and that was the idea in, in the worship of Dionysius, also known as Bacchus, that if you got really rip-roaring drunk, then the spirit of the God would enter into you, and this was a sign of spirituality. So I think that's more of what Paul is talking about here than that talking about the idea of con- being controlled by alcohol. That's not the idea at all. So instead of using wine to become more spiritual and entering into uh, some sort of exchange with the God, you, we are to be filled by means of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, the next few verses explain the results of being filled by the Spirit. The Spirit isn't the content. Content would be expressed with a genitive in the Greek, but it's a dative. So dative talks about means. It talks about the way in which we are, are, are filled with something. It doesn't mention what the something is. But the results of letting the Spirit fill us with something, we speak in to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So we're singing, we're in worship, singing 
uh, praise to God, not praise choruses, but singing good, solid, uh, biblically grounded hymns, giving thanks, so it's expressing gratitude to God for all that he has given us, and then submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now, what goes on from there is uh, talking about husbands loving your wives, wives submitting to your husbands, uh, fathers bringing up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and uh, children obeying your parents. That's all the result of letting the Word of God fill you up by the Spirit of God. So he's filling you up with something. The parallel passage is what tells us what that content is. It's the Word of Christ. There Paul says, let the Word of Christ dwell richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. See, that's the result of letting the Word of Christ dwell in you. So if in Ephesians 5.18, being filled by the Spirit produces singing and giving thanks to the Lord and having right relationships in the home, and in Colossians 3.18, it is letting the Word of Christ dwell in you that produces the same thing, then those two things being filled by the Spirit with something, the with something is defined in Colossians 3.16. The emphasis on in uh, Ephesians is on walking by the Spirit and being filled by the Spirit, and the emphasis in Colossians 3.16 is on the Word of Christ. You put that together, you see that what the Spirit fills you with is not himself. We're already indwelt by the Spirit. What we're being filled with is the Word of God. And so when we're walking by the Spirit, the Spirit is filling us with His Word, and that is to produce a changed character and changed life. So uh, what we've seen here is that the condition for producing fruit in uh, Ephesians chapter 5 is to walk like children of light. Well, that idea of walking like children of light comes up also in 1 John. And so turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, we see this same emphasis and walking in the light. Walking in the light produces fruit, the fruit of righteousness in Ephesians 5, 8, and 9. Abiding in Christ produces fruit. We'll see in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the walking by the Spirit of Galatians 5, 16 produces the fruit of the Spirit. So each of these are talking about the same thing. Walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, walking in the light are all roughly talking about the same thing. So in 1 John 1, 5, John says, this is the message which we have heard from him. So this is what Jesus taught them back in John 14, 15, 16, and 17, the upper room discourse. John 15 uses all of the same phraseology and language that you find back in the upper room discourse. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, when that talks about God as light, this is one of those metaphors that is rich in Scripture and used quite a bit. The idea of God being light emphasizes that 
that there's nothing dark in him. So it emphasizes in uh, many cases the righteousness of God. For example, in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. We have a lot of people today who call evil good and good evil, and they're under the curse of God, according to Isaiah 5.20. Woe is the pronouncement of a curse. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So light here is related to that which is good, that which is compatible with the righteousness of God. So when we say God is light, it emphasizes his righteousness. Now, in both Hebrew and Greek, the words for justice and the word for righteousness are the same. It depends on the context, uh, whether it's talking about righteousness as the standard for God's character or justice, which is the application of God's righteousness. So... Um, the second use of light talks about the justice of God. In Isaiah 59, 9, Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. Notice the use of those two terms. We hope for light, but behold darkness. See, that's, re- that's explaining justice and righteousness. So light talks about God's righteousness, talks about his justice, and it talks about his truth. For example, in Psalm 43, 3, O send out thy light and thy truth, that light brings illumination. Only truth illuminates in darkness. So God is righteous, God is just, God is truth and provides truth, and in him there's no darkness at all. That's who God is. But if we say that we have fellowship, that fellowship with him and walk in darkness, and I want to point this out, fellowship is used in relation to an active concept of walking. Here it's you're, you claim to be uh, having that partnership with God, but you're living a life that is characterized by, by darkness, by sin. In contrast, in verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. See, having fellowship, which sounds like it's a passive thing, is really active because it's related to that active concept of walking walking in the light. So this is the message which we've heard from him and declare to you. The standard is God. He is absolute justice, righteousness, and truth. If we claim to have a partnership with him where we're living our life close to him and yet we're living our life in darkness characterized by sin, then we lie and we don't practice the truth. Now, he's not talking, he's not saying you're not a believer. He's saying you're not living like a child of the light. You're living like you're still a child of darkness. But in contrast, if you, we walk in the light, so there are times when we're walking in obedience to the Lord and we're enjoying that rich partnership and fellowship with him, then we have or we enjoy that fellowship with one another also. So horizontal fellowship is always predicated and based on having that walk with the Lord. If we're 
to use the phrase out of fellowship, if we're not walking according to the Spirit, walking in the light of God's Word, we can't have horizontal fellowship with each other. We may go to parties together, socialize together, play sports together, have a great time together, but it's not biblical fellowship if we're not first and foremost walking in right relationship with the Lord, uh, involved in that partnership in our life, walking uh, by the Spirit. What's interesting is we see this goes back to 1 John 1, 3, where John says uh, that he's declared that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And that's not a passive concept. It is a working partnership in the ministry of the Word of God and the ministry of the gospel. So this idea that being in fellowship is a passive thing or a static thing, that because we confess sin, we're in fellowship, you know, I'm okay for a couple of seconds here, is, is, is misleading because this is an active concept of, of walking by the Spirit and walking in the light, walking in obedience to God's Word. When we're disobedient, the Scripture says that we're enemies of God. We're believers. Both James 4, 4 and Philippians 3.18 are talking about believers. And in James 4, 4, James is very harsh on his audience, and he calls them unfaithful, adulterers and adulteresses. That doesn't mean they're involved in sexual immorality. What he is telling them is they're unfaithful to their father, unfaithful to the family that they've now been adopted into. He calls them adulterers and adulteresses, unfaithful believers, that is, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That explains it. It's talking about being unfaithful to God, and so that is an act of rebellion against God, an act of of, uh, enmity, of anger uh, and resentment toward God. And then he says, Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. No, it doesn't say makes himself an unbeliever. But it makes himself an enemy. So you can be a believer, but a rebellious child, a prodigal son. Philippians 3.18, Paul says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. These are those who are saved, but they're in rebellion against the Father. So let's just summarize. From Ephesians, we learn, number one, that we are children of light. That's our position, our new identity. Number two, even though we are children of light, we still have to learn how to walk as children of light. We can walk like children of darkness. From 1 John, we learn, number three, that God is pure light. He's righteousness, justice, and truth. Fourth, that his character is incompatible with darkness in any way, shape, or form. And therefore, we cannot, number five, we cannot walk in darkness and enjoy that partnership in life with God. We cut ourselves off. We become enemies of the cross. We become enemies of God. Sixth, 
we learn that the necessary condition for producing the fruit of the Spirit or the fruit of light is walking in the light, which means to enjoy the active partnership in life with God. That's the same thing that we'll see under point eight as abiding in Christ. So in, in Ephesians, the necessary condition is walking in the light. Number seven, the walking in light is characterized um, that walking in the light is also characterized by being filled in our souls with the word of Christ. The word of Christ dwells in us, or it makes its home in us. The word there isn't abiding in us, minnow. It is a different word based on oikos, which has to do with making its home in our souls. And that leads to point eight. Therefore, abiding in John 15 is the condition for fruit, Walking by the Spirit is the condition for fruit in Ephesians chapter 5. Now we're going to come back next time and we'll look at Philippians 1, 9 through 10 and you'll read it from now until next week and you won't find any hint of the idea of light in the English translation. So we'll come back and see how that introduces light but it also brings in the idea of abounding in knowledge, that's epinosis and discernment. And so this opens the door to understanding a key word that Peter uses, and that will be the foundation for our study uh, next time. So let's uh, bow our heads together in closing prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at these things tonight and pull things together, to think about things in a way that uh, perhaps we haven't quite thought about them, to just fine-tune our understanding what it means to be in fellowship, that it means to walk by the Spirit. It means to be actively involved in our spiritual life, uh, intimately involved in our relationship with you, actively in partnership uh, with you in our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. And that this is necessary in order for that uh, transformation to take place, where we are transformed from being a follower of the world system to being a your child and living consistent with what it means to be a child of God, a child of the light. And we pray you'll challenge us with what we've learned. In Christ's name, amen.